heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. I thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you for what we've learned about sanctification. And I pray as we look into Scripture and the writings of Ellen White about the concept of forgiveness, that it will give us a deeper understanding of what you want for us in the area of forgiveness. So thank you so much. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor George asked me to share a topic about forgiveness as it relates to better health. Now, what do you think forgiveness has to do with health? How is good health and forgiveness related to each other? Well, first of all, how many of us have ever needed to be forgiven? I think everyone should put our hand up. How many of us today need to forgive someone? Is there someone out there right now that you need to forgive that perhaps you haven't forgiven? Well, you know, the Bible makes it very clear in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that how many have sinned? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if we have sinned, that means that we need forgiveness. Is that true? And who is it that can forgive us? It is God. And you know, when we sin, it is true, when we sin, it typically affects somebody here on this earth. It may be a spouse, a brother, a sister, a family member, a friend. When we sin, we affect someone that we are related to. But ultimately, when we sin, we affect God. And Psalms chapter 51, verse 4, David says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. So when we sin, we are sinning against God. And the book of Hebrews reminds us, and this is found in Hebrews chapter 6, that when we sin, we crucify the Son of God afresh. That's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. Now, clearly, our sins have an effect on God because our sins put Jesus on the cross. If Jesus had not died for us, we could not receive forgiveness. But you know, our sins and our need for forgiveness has a direct relationship on our personal health. Now, I want to read a quote from Ministry of Healing, page 241. And this will give a picture of how sin affects our own health. Now notice this. The relation that exists between the mind and the body is very intimate. When one is affected, the other sympathizes. The condition of the mind affects the health to a far greater degree than many realize. So you realize that your state of mind affects your health? And then notice what she says. Many of the diseases from which men suffer are the result of mental depression. 
Okay, so your mind can lead, if it's in a poor state of health, to mental depression. And mental depression then can lead to many of the diseases from which men suffer. And notice what happens when you have mental depression. Notice what she says. Grief, anxiety, discontent, remorse, guilt, distrust, all tend to break down the life forces and to invite decay and death. So notice, there's a number of things that she mentions. The things I'm going to focus on are remorse, anxiety, and guilt. Because typically, if you have guilt and if you have remorse, that means that you need forgiveness. Does that make sense? If you're guilty about something, that means that you did something you know you shouldn't have done, and that means you need forgiveness. If you have anxiety or remorse for something, or guilt, you know that you did something wrong, and you need forgiveness. And if you don't receive forgiveness, it's going to lead to a state of mental health that will lead to depression, that will lead to disease and decay of your health and death. You see that connection? So the way we think is affected by the things that we do. And if we are doing things that are going contrary to God's word, it's going to lead to guilt in our minds, which will lead to remorse, which will lead to depression, which can lead to many different diseases. And this leads to poor health. But you know, God does not want us to stay in that condition. Do you believe that? Let's turn to Psalms chapter 86, verse 5, to see what the scripture says about what God has for us, what he wants for us. Psalms chapter 86, verse 5, and I love this verse. It says, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy upon all them that call upon thee. Did you know that God is ready to forgive you? There may be many of you here today who are weighed down with guilt, with anxiety, with remorse, wishing that your life was on a different pathway. And as you saw the presentation this morning, you realize, you know what, that's me. I'm allowing my appetite and passion to control my life and my mind is in a terrible state because I just eat whatever I feel like eating even though I know I shouldn't. And so you have guilt, you have remorse, and it leads your mind to be in a depressed state that leads you to have poor health. And you want to have a different experience. And you know, the Lord is ready to give you that different experience because the Lord is good. He's merciful. He is ready to forgive. He's ready to give you a new life. He is ready to forgive. Now, once, one of the stories in Scripture that demonstrates the forgiveness of God and all that it encompasses, because, you know, in Christianity today, and, and Dr. Sandoval talked about this, the, the majority of the Christian world and the gospel they present, they love to talk about forgiveness. Isn't that true? Forgiveness is very much a topic that people like to talk about. 
But what we want to look at today is what is a biblical picture of true forgiveness that God offers to us? And so I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 in the story found in verses 1 through 7. And this is the story of the paralytic. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? You're sick, and you come and see Jesus, and the first thing Jesus says to you, instead of saying, be healed, the very first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemed. And it is true, if Jesus was not God, it would be blasphemy to offer forgiveness of sins. And it doesn't matter, there's people who still think today that you can go to someone other than God to receive forgiveness of sin. And that's not true. The only person you can go to is God. Verse 4, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then said he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, what do you think is easier? To say to someone, your sins are forgiven? Or to say to someone who is paralyzed, Arise, take up your bed, and walk? You know, it's a lot easier to actually offer someone physical healing than it is to offer someone spiritual healing. And you know, in my work as a physician here at Community Hospital, a lot of the patients that I see have physical illnesses, and it's pretty easy for me in my training to say, here's your problem, here are some things that we can do to help you feel better. But it's a lot harder to convince someone that it's their lifestyle, their choices, the things that they have done in their lives that have contributed to their present physical condition and that they need spiritual healing. People will put up more of a resistance to that idea. So in that sense, it's easier to offer physical healing than spiritual healing. But in this sense, in this story, what Jesus is showing is that only God can forgive sins. So there are two miracles that are happening in this story. And Jesus is showing, look, I'm performing two miracles. I am forgiving this man's sins, and I am healing him of his paralysis. And because... I am God, and there is no one else besides me. It is much harder to offer forgiveness of sin, and I am performing that miracle for him. And it was to open their eyes, the eyes of the Jews, the spiritual leaders, that he was God. Now, I want to point out some things about this story, and this is found in the book Ministry of Healing 
and it's from the chapter Healing of the Soul. That should give you some kind of idea of what is really taking place here. And this is where Ellen White talks about the paralytic. Now, this is page 73 of Ministry of Healing. Like the leper, this paralytic had lost all hope of recovery. And notice this, his disease was the result of a sinful life. So the paralytic was paralyzed because he lived a sinful life. And many of us today have poor health because of poor choices. His disease was the result of a sinful life, and his sufferings were embittered by remorse. In vain he had appealed to the Pharisees and doctors for relief. They pronounced him incurable. Then he heard of the works of Jesus. Others, as sinful and helpless as he, had been healed, and he was encouraged to believe that he too might be cured if he could be carried to the Savior. And you know, we as God's people today have a message to the world to uplift Jesus as the Savior of the world who can heal the sin-sick soul. Jesus can heal us. And we need to show the world by our lives that Jesus has healed us. Because if we tell the world, Jesus can save you from your sins, and then they look at our lives, and we are still weighed down with a burden of sin, they're going to say, what are you talking about? It hasn't worked in your life, so why would I go to that Jesus that you're talking about? You say Jesus can heal me from my sins, but when I look at your life, you still have a bad temper. You still get angry at people. When people make you mad, you give them the silent treatment. You look the other way at them when you see them at church, and you aren't showing to me that you're really a Christ-like person. So why would I go to that Jesus for healing? We need to show the world that Jesus has healed our souls. And when the paralytic saw that Jesus had healed others who had been as sinful and helpless as him, it gave him hope. And we have a message of hope to a lost and dying world. The whole world around us is lost and dying, and we have a message of hope and healing. Page 74, the story continues. His great desire was relief from the burden of sin. Notice this. His great desire was not so much that he would be healed of his paralysis. Sure, that would be nice too. But his great desire was the relief from the burden of sin. In order for us to receive spiritual healing and forgiveness from the Lord, we need to recognize the burden that sin has created in our lives. If we are okay with sin, why would we want healing? And you know, I see patients, and I know Dr. Sandoval can say the same thing. You'll see patients come through the hospital, and you'll say, you know what? You have diabetes. You have high blood pressure. It's out of control. If you don't change your lifestyle, you're going to die. And they say, but doctor, I feel fine. 
I know my blood pressure is 190 over 110, but I don't feel anything. I feel great. Why would I need to change? Well, because if you don't change, you're going to either have a heart attack or a stroke, and you're going to die. And sometimes that works by scaring people. But we need to realize that as sinners in need of the grace of God, we are spiritual diabetics, spiritual hypertensives, many times not recognizing our symptoms and not realizing that we have a spiritual condition that is silently killing us just as hypertension is known as the silent killer because people can have it, don't know it, and then one day they show up with a heart attack and they're dead. We can be in that condition. But this man, this paralytic, he had a desire to be relieved from the burden of sin. And you know, we are the Laodicean church, and Scripture says that we don't know that we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and we are destitute of the righteousness of Christ. If we are naked, we don't have His righteousness. And that's indisputable. You have to be covered with Christ's righteousness to have it. And Laodicea is naked. But we don't realize it, so we are like spiritual hypertensives who, the hypertensives, they don't know that they have hypertension because they don't feel the symptoms. And we can be that way. But this man knew that he was weighed down with a burden of sin. He longed to see Jesus, to receive the assurance of forgiveness and peace with heaven. Then he would be content to live or die according to God's will. He didn't need to be healed physically. He just needed forgiveness from sin. And continuing on, he comes to Jesus... He's drawn to Christ. His friends bring him. You know the story. They take the roof apart. He's lowered down through the roof. And Jesus takes a look at him. And the very first thing that Jesus says to him is, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Jesus knew what this man wanted. And Jesus was willing to forgive him because this man wanted to be relieved of the burden of sin. And notice what Ellen White says, page 76. The burden of guilt rolls from the sick man's soul. He cannot doubt. Christ's words reveal his power to read the heart. Who can deny his power to forgive sins? Hope takes the place of despair and joy of oppressive gloom. The man's physical pain is gone and his whole being is transformed. Making no further request, he lay in peaceful silence, too happy for words. So now that he's been forgiven for his sins, he's not even saying, okay, Jesus, thank you so much for forgiving me for my sins. Now can you help me walk? He's just happy that his sins have been forgiven. And you know, there's many of us here today, we know that there are things in our lives that are weighing us down with the burden of sin. We know that the Lord has promised to give us victory over those things, and yet we hang on to those things. And Jesus is here speaking to us today saying, I want to forgive you of your sins and to remove those sins from your lives. And we have the opportunity to do that today. 
as we continue on, page 77, says the paralytic found in Christ healing for both the soul and the body. He needed health of soul before he could appreciate health of body. Before the physical malady could be healed, Christ must bring relief to the mind and cleanse the soul from sin. This lesson should not be overlooked. There are today thousands suffering from physical disease who, like the paralytic, are longing for the message, thy sins are forgiven. The burden of sin with its unrest and unsatisfied desires is the foundation of their maladies. They can find no relief until they come to the healer of the soul. And we need to find that relief. We need to come to Jesus as the healer of the soul. And then she closes by saying, the effect produced upon the people by the healing of the paralytic was as if heaven had opened and revealed the glories of the better world. And Jesus wants to do that today. Jesus wants to open the glories of heaven through his Advent people who give glory to God in the judgment hour when we bring a message that brings spiritual healing to people. When we give the message of Christ to the world, when we give the message of, the, of Christ to the world that Christ has died for our sins, that He has come to not save us in our sins, from, but from our sins. That we, that we can have the power of a transformed life. Yes, then the world will see the glories of heaven open and they will say, we have seen Jesus. We have experienced His power. We see what it means to be a Christian. The burden of sin has finally been removed. I've been to all these other pastors, to all these other churches who say, you know what, you'll accept Christ, but you'll just keep sinning and be weighed down with a burden of guilt until Jesus comes. But the Bible teaches, no, that burden of guilt can be removed. The sins will no longer weigh you down when you have victory in Christ. Imagine if a pathologic murderer who is in one of our prisons here in Trinidad received the Advent message, and we told him, Jesus will forgive you. All you have to do is accept Him as your Savior, and you will be saved. And that person in prison accepts Jesus as his Savior, and then we tell the warden of the prison, hey, he's a Christian now. He's accepted Jesus. You can let him go. And wonder of wonders, they let him go. And three days later, he goes out and shoots someone. And when he's apprehended by the law, he says, it's okay. I'm a Christian. There isn't power in Christianity to keep me from killing someone. But because I accept Jesus as my Savior, I'm saved and I can do whatever I want. Would that be the power of the gospel? Now, all of you here are shaking your heads because that's such a ridiculous illustration. But do you, do you realize that we, in essence, say the very same thing when we say, you can accept Jesus as your Savior, He will forgive you for your sins, and you can keep snapping at your wife, losing your temper, being a, an irritable person to be around, but you'll still go to heaven. 
and yet that is what the Christian gospel in many parts of the world teaches, but it's not the power of the real gospel. The power of the gospel brings restoration to the soul. Just as Jesus restored this, the paralytic spiritually and physically through the forgiveness of sin, we can be restored spiritually and physically. But you know, we've seen how God forgives. And I'm just going to summarize the story found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, but we know the story. It's the story where the servant comes to his master and he owes his master 10,000 talents, which is a huge amount of money. And the master says, if you don't pay me the money, I'm going to throw you in prison. And the servant says, give me time, please, and I'll pay you back. And so his master forgives him. And then the servant goes out and finds someone who owes him a day's wages. And he says, pay me now. And the, the servant couldn't. And so he throws him into prison. And you know, we're like that servant. God has forgiven us so much. And when people in our lives cross us, when they offend us, perhaps even legitimately, perhaps some of you have been deeply wounded by unkind and untrue words that someone has said to you. Maybe you have had something even worse happened to you. We've seen examples of people who have lost their spouse to someone who stole, who ran off with someone else. Things that are terrible. But you know, no, ma no matter how bad, no matter how awful the things that other people do to us, you know, the Bible tells us that we are to forgive because nothing that anyone could do to us could surpass what we've done to God. Our sins have put Jesus on the cross. And sure, we can be hurt in a legitimate way. We can be unjustly and unkindly and unfairly hurt. But nothing in the way that Jesus was done. Jesus came to this earth to save us and we put him on the cross and killed him for his efforts. And you know, right before Jesus tells that parable, Peter said to Jesus, so how often should I forgive my brother for the same thing? Seven times? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Do we have that forgiving spirit? You know, I'm going to tell a, a brief story um, of an experience that I had while in college. This story happened about, oh, 11 years ago. And this weekend actually happens to be my 10-year alumni weekend at Southern Adventist University back in the United States. I'm not there, I'm down here, and I'm happy to be with you. But it's been 10 years since I graduated from college, and this story happened about a year before I graduated from college. There was a young lady there that I knew, and um, let's just say that it was a, a challenging friendship, to put it kindly. 
And um, I was going through a difficult experience with my father. My father ended up passing away from a, a medical condition called multiple sclerosis. Um, but he was still alive at this time and he was deteriorating rapidly. And I was with this young lady at lunch one day and I was having a very, I was, I was very sad about how my father was doing. And I was having a difficult time coming to terms with the reality that my father, who had been a physician, a very successful physician, a very good father, was now in a nursing home and he couldn't walk. And it was a very tough time for me. And apparently this young lady um, got tired of me talking about this. She felt that all I ever talked about was my father's illness. And it reached a certain point in the conversation where she snapped at me. Because I made a little comment about how all I ever did at this point was study when I wasn't thinking about my dad. And she just snapped. And these, I can still hear the words in my mind. She was like, well, it's a good thing because if you didn't study all the time, you'd be an emotional wreck. And I'm not sure that I've ever been more angry in my life than I was at that moment. I mean, I can honestly say that my wife has never said anything to make me that angry. Um, because I was hurting. I was going through a very challenging emotional time and this young lady decided to, she just got tired of me talking about it. She lashed out at me and said that I would be an emotional wreck if I didn't study all the time. Well, <clears throat> the reason I tell this story is because I did not handle that situation very well afterwards. For actually a number of years, I had a spirit that was very unforgiving towards this person, even though the Bible says that we should forgive those who mistreat us. And so after that conversation, I refused to talk to this person. In fact, later that evening, I was in the computer lab at school, and she happened to come in. I didn't know she was going to be there. And um, I was very thankful that there was not a seat right next to me. And so she had to sit one person over so that there was a person in between the two of us. And I was very glad that she wasn't sitting right next to me. And so when I finished my assignment on the computer, I got up and left and didn't say a word to her. And I think that really surprised her. So she sent me a note apologizing for what she had said earlier in the day. But I didn't forgive her. And for the remainder of that school year, which was my last year at Southern, every time I passed her in the hall or anywhere else, I wouldn't look her in the eye just to let her know, hey, what you did was unacceptable and I'm not going to talk to you. And I'd never done this to anyone else before in my life. This was the first time I'd ever treated anybody this way. And Towards the end of my, right before I graduated, we ended up talking and it didn't go very well. And so things weren't resolved. 
and then I moved out to California and was there for a number of years. And then lo and behold, one Sabbath, I was the speaker for church. And of all people that would show up, this young lady showed up. And she was married by this point in time, and I knew she had gotten married. And um, I happened to be preaching that Sabbath on the faith of Abraham. And the message was, we need to have the faith of Abraham who, when God called him to offer up Isaac on the altar, even though he didn't understand, he was willing to do what God said. And here's this young lady who I've really never forgiven. And I'm the preacher that Sabbath. And as it turned out, one of her friends came to that church and she was visiting. And I don't think, you know, I never could have known that she was going to be there. And I don't think she knew that I was going to be speaking that Sabbath. And um, she sat on the very front row. Well, after the sermon was over, she was over there and I went that way. And um, we didn't talk. So I think we may have made eye contact a little bit during the sermon just because I was looking around and whatever. But after that, I was convicted. I was like, you know, um, here I was giving a message for the Lord, and here was a a sister that I've never forgiven, and after all these years, she shows up, and I wasn't even talking to her anymore. And you could make an argument that what she said had been very unkind. Obviously, I think it was, but... I think I certainly trumped her unkindness by my um, silent treatment. And so I sent her an email probably about two weeks after that sermon. This was about five years ago now. And I never heard from her until six months later. And then she wrote back and she said, you know, I didn't know what to say to you after you wrote me, but, you know, I forgive you and I'm sorry for everything I did too. And um, I've never seen her since then. I kind of doubt that I ever will, especially now that I'm down here. But it was actually, it took years for the Lord to work on me so that I would actually forgive this person. Um, And fortunately, God doesn't treat me the way I treated her. Amen? Amen? And, you know, I tell that story because I know that I'm not the only one who's ever done that to someone. And I know that there's people here today, some of you as well, who perhaps you can think of someone in your life that you're not on speaking terms with, that you're angry with, that you give the cold shoulder to, you give the silent treatment to when things go wrong. And I'm thankful that God does not treat us that way. And I want to read a quote. This is from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing beginning on page 113. Notice this. We should not think that unless those who have injured us confess the wrong, we are justified in withholding from them our forgiveness. You hear that? So it's like, well, I'll forgive them if they undo the wrong they did to me. So that'd be like me saying, well, I'll treat her nice if she apologizes for what she said to me when I was grieving about my dad. Then I'll I'll, I'll 
apologize to her. Her first, because she was wrong first, and then me, because then I messed up because she made me mess up. Do we do that? We should not think that unless those who have injured us confess the wrong, we are justified in withholding them from our forgiveness. It is their part, no doubt, to humble their hearts by repentance and confession. But we are to have a spirit of compassion toward those who have trespassed against us, whether or not they confess their faults. However sorely they may have wounded us, we are not to cherish our grievances and sympathize with ourselves over our injuries, but as we hope to be pardoned for our offenses against God, we are to pardon all who have done evil to us. Okay? Now I'm going to get into the area where I want us to have a a true understanding of what forgiveness entails. Because so many times we say, The gospel is that God forgives us for the sins that we've committed. And even if we don't get victory, we're covered and we'll be going to heaven. But no. Notice what Ellen White says. Forgiveness, and this is the same passage, continuing on after saying, we need to forgive those even if they don't make it right. Forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives the promise that he will abundantly pardon, He adds, as if the meaning of that promise exceeded all that we could comprehend, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. And then continuing on, page 114 of Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. You realize that? Most people believe that all that forgiveness is, is it's a legal act in heaven where God says, I've forgiven Brother McNulty for his sins, and now he's legally in right standing with me, no longer under condemnation. Yes, that is part of forgiveness. But Ellen White says that it's not merely that. So what is it? Notice what she says. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. So do you realize that when you are forgiven by God, He forgives you because He's transformed you with a new heart. You come to God and say, I surrender, Lord. I'm done playing games of sinning and sinning and sinning. I surrender. I can't do it on my own anymore. I'm inviting you to take over my life. Please forgive me and empower me to live your life. And then God says, that's it. You have the Spirit of repentance. He forgives you and he reclaims you from sin. And she says, it is the outflowing of redeeming love that transforms the heart. So notice, forgiveness not only is a judicial act, it transforms us. So many of us, as I talked about at the beginning, we are in a situation where we have all of these problems health problems, emotional problems, anxiety, remorse, guilt, because we are still living in sin. And because we are still living in sin, we have grief, anxiety, guilt, remorse, which leads to diseases, physical diseases. And the Lord wants to heal us of these things. You may be asking, Well, Dr. McNulty, I've been struggling with sin, certain sins in my life for many years. There's people that I can't forgive. 
You don't understand. When I was a child, I was abused. You don't understand. My parents, they didn't love me. You don't understand. My spouse ran off. You don't understand. I was fired from a job when I stood up for what was right, and now I don't have money to pay the bills. But God says we need to forgive. And He is willing to cleanse us and heal us of the sins in our lives. And the question is how? And I want to take you to another passage from the Spirit of Prophecy. And then to a few passages of Scripture as we close. This is found from Manuscript Releases, Volume 21, page 37, where Ellen White says, Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. You know why we have so much trouble understanding the gospel? It's because we don't see Christ hanging on the cross for us. Hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. If you read that passage right before that, she talks about how Christ did not want to die on the cross, but because it was the Father's will, He said in Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. And the reason He did is because the lost world that we are in was set before Him, and He realized if He didn't go through with the cross, we would be lost. When you see Jesus hanging on the cross, imagine this. Your sin put him there. And he loves you so much that he didn't want the sin that put him there to cause you to be lost. And so here we have our wonderful, merciful Savior who loves us so much that he put himself on the cross to die for us. Now let me ask you this. And I have to ask myself this question. Was I willing to die for that young lady who made me angry? No, I was not. I was ready to do something to her. And we need to learn to develop the spirit of Christ. Hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. We mistreated him. We sinned against him. We put him there, and he says, okay, I love you so much, I'm dying for you because of what you just did. When people mistreat us, we say, how dare you do that to me? I'm going to put you in your place. I'll show you who I am. How dare you talk to me like that? Don't you know who I am? That's so wrong. I did this for you. I did this for you. I did this for you. And now look at what you did to me. Did Jesus say that to us? You know what Jesus could have said to us? Jesus could could have said, how dare you do that to me? I came down to this earth to save you. I've been here for 33 years. And the best you can do is spit on me and then put me on a cross. Forget all of you. I'm going back to heaven and you can go to eternity of being lost. Take that. Does that sound like us sometimes? But Jesus didn't treat us that way, did He? Hanging on the cross, Christ was the Gospel. 
first and foremost, because he forgave us for our sins. He offers that forgiveness to us. Psalms 86.5 says he's ready to forgive us. Now, not only has Christ offered forgiveness for us by the cross, but Ellen White says later in this passage, page 37, she says that he presents before us an example of self-denial and self-sacrifice. So here we see Christ as the example of self-denial and self-sacrifice. When he could have been back in heaven, in the glories of heaven, he came to this earth and he died a terrible death by being self-sacrificing and self-denying. Did you know that the gospel calls us to live the same kind of life? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Because inspiration tells us, hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. He denied self. He was self-sacrificing. Not only did he forgive us, but he sacrificed and denied himself. What does Galatians 2.20 say? We probably know this passage by heart. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what that passage says? When the power of the gospel has taken a hold of my life, I am crucified with Christ. And you know, when Ellen White says, hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel, that tells us when Christ was crucified, He was the gospel. And you know what that tells us about Galatians 2.20? When I am crucified with Christ, I am a living demonstration of the gospel. And the question today is, am I a living demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you know how to know if you're a living demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is to see, are you really dead? So, I have to ask myself the question, do I still treat people in a similar way as I did when that young lady crossed me 10, 11 years ago? Am I ready to say, how dare you treat me that way? I'm not going to talk to you again. I'll show you a thing or two. Don't you ever dare treat me like that again. That will teach you. Or are we like Jesus Christ? Who, in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 20, notice what Jesus did as he sets an example for us. Starting in verse 20, it says, For what glory is it? If when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So Christ has left us an example. What is the example? Verse 22, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So when Christ was being mistreated, 
when Christ was being spat upon, when Christ was in Pilate's judgment hall and he was being scourged, when he was on the cross and they were saying, if he will come down from the cross, then we will believe in him. He can't be the Son of God if he can't come down from the cross. He took it patiently. He made himself of no reputation. And we need to learn to have that same experience. We need to have the experience of being crucified with Christ. Are you crucified with Christ today? The only way you can be is by seeing Jesus on the cross for you. Because in your human nature, this is what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come to your mind. You may hear some things this afternoon about your diet. And you're going to say, well, Lord, no, no. I'll give you everything but that. I'll give you anything else but that part of my life. No way. You can't take that thing from me. Please, no. I can't give that up. And the question is, will you be crucified with Christ? How then can you surrender those things to Christ? Look at Christ on the cross. If you look at Jesus on the cross seeing what He has done for you because you put Him there, how then could we hold back anything from Him? Amen? And so I'm going to close with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Yeah, verses 1 and 2, which says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And when we look unto Jesus, what do we see? Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. He was crucified, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to learn to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, so that we will patiently take being crucified with Him. When we are crucified with Christ, then we will be a demonstration of the Gospel to the world. And you know, it is time as Seventh-day Adventists to take this Gospel of the Kingdom for a witness to the world. If we just preach the theory of the Gospel without the witness of the Gospel, this Gospel will not go to the world for a long time. We've been here since 1844, and we've had the theory of the gospel for a long time. But in practice, we are not demonstrating it. And God is looking for a group of people who will demonstrate the everlasting gospel, the gospel that has never changed, the gospel of Christ hanging on the cross, the gospel of His people who have been crucified with Christ and who are living demonstrations of the power of the gospel on this earth. Living demonstrations of people who have experienced forgiveness, who have experienced healing, who have experienced transformation, and who demonstrate this is what it is like to be changed by the power of the gospel. I forgive those who mistreat me, and even if they never apologize to me, I will treat them with the love of Christ. I will be like Jesus no matter how you treat me. I will show His love to all the world around me by the power of Christ who lives out His life through me. Because I have been crucified with Christ and now Christ lives out His life through me. How many of you would like to have 
that experience of forgiveness and healing in your lives today. If you would, I would invite you to stand with me at this time as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you offer forgiveness and healing to each one of us. I pray that for those of us who are weighed down with a burden of sin, like the paralytic, that we would feel that burden of sin and that we would long for spiritual healing. And I pray that we would come to you, the great physician, the great healer of body and soul, to receive forgiveness and healing. And that we would learn to experience the power of the gospel so that we can be crucified with you and be like Jesus here on this earth. So that we can be living demonstrations of the power of Christ here on this earth. So that just as Christ hanging on the gospel was a demonstration of the gospel, we who have been crucified with Christ can be living demonstrations of the gospel here on this earth. So Lord, forgive us for where we've fallen short. Help us to surrender everything in our lives to you so that when you bring new light to us about things we need to give up so that we can be more like you, so that you can speak to us more clearly, that we will gladly and humbly give all to you so that you can live out your lives through us. I pray for this church congregation. I thank you so much for bringing all of us here today and for the presence of your spirit with us. We know that Jesus is coming soon. And I pray that these messages will soften our hearts to be ready for what is to come upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. Bring healing to our soul and body. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.